Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. In my experience, you know, veterans, you know, who were potentially culpable or, you know, who served as agents of trauma or violence on others, um, you know, for reasons that maybe really were juxtaposed to the rules of engagement, um, that when they seek treatment, they don't want somebody who's going to explain away their actions. They want somebody who's going to help them to to take responsibility and to really come to terms. Um, you know, so in a way, it's akin to a process of confession. Um, you know, that they want somebody you know who's not going to, um, you know, for lack of a better word, absolve their sins too too quickly. They want to own them. They want to take responsibility for them. When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life, critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. Everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Uh, as you know, we're in the middle of this series uh, looking at uh, veteran mental health that's going beyond just PTSD uh, and TBI. And we started this um, about five or six episodes ago. Uh, and as I'd mentioned there, it definitely we talked about PTSD and TBI with uh, Dr. Mary Catherine uh, and uh, Marissa Brandt. And, uh, and, and we've had these conversations about what people think uh, veteran mental health is, uh, but now we've started to go beyond what people typically think about when they, they come to veteran mental health. And so our guest today uh, is, is Dr. Joseph Courier, 
and uh, he is one of the leading experts and researchers on the concept of moral injury. Uh, and this idea of moral injury is is something that has uh, started to emerge, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years um, as sub- something uh, kin-, kin to or like um, PTSD, but also something very different. So uh, I'd uh, really looking forward to this conversation with uh, with Joe, and uh, and we'll go ahead and get started. Joe, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no problem. I mean, I'm I'm really glad that you took the time uh, to to share your knowledge and share your research and everything that uh, that you've come to understand. Uh, so before we get started into moral injury, I'd like to uh, have you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, um, sort of uh, where you're at right now and and what you're doing. Yeah, so I, I'm currently an assistant professor and the director of clinical training um, for the clinical and counseling psychology doctoral program at the University of South Alabama. Um, prior to coming here to USA, uh, you know, I've spent about eight to ten years, you know, working with veterans in various capacities as a clinician and a researcher. Um, You know, I had the great fortune, like many clinical psychologists, to complete my uh, residency and fellowship training at a a VA medical center. And it was really um, in those experiences um, around 2007, 8, 9, when, you know, the second and third waves of uh, veterans were coming back from the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know I was a, a therapist who was put in the position to to help them to heal and to recover and to restore meaning and relationship in life. And it, it was really those encounters that um, captured my heart for helping this population, and um, really began to. Um, make me ask questions about ways to more effectively support um, veteran mental health. So that's that's uh, really great. Did you anticipate that you were going to work with veterans? Uh, was was uh, was your placement in the VA uh, something that that you searched out or, or were you kind of surprised that this was an aspect of clinical psychology you fell into? Um, I guess. Uh, I would probably answer that question both and. Uh, I have long been interested in the topic of trauma. Um, I've, I've long been interested in uh, existential spiritual dimensions of trauma adjustment. Um, and, you know, when I got about halfway through my, my PhD training, um, I also wanted to pursue work that would respond to the needs of society. And, you know, I happened to go through my PhD training um, a couple years after um, we launched into the, the ground combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so I, I had the fortune of uh, doing a, uh, a, a practicum um, at the Memphis uh, VA Medical Center, and uh, I worked with the PTSD clinical team there for about a year and a half. And um, it was about three or four months into that practicum training that I began to think really seriously about specializing in veteran mental health for my career. Um, That was not something that I had anticipated when I started my PhD training, but it emerged probably about halfway through. And thankfully, um, I haven't needed to veer veer away from that. Um, Yes, unfortunately... um it is a, a booming business, uh, as I always say, and I imagine you probably do. It would be uh, great if we got to a point where we weren't needed, but uh, we absolutely are right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's, it, it's important to me. I think, like many of us, I, I really enjoy being needed, um, although I, I would covet the day where maybe we don't need people like me to be working so hard. Yeah. Now, and, and that's something, and you mentioned uh, existential um, uh, aspects existential psychology. That was actually uh, a discussion I had on uh, on the previous episode with Dr. Aaron James Smith. That um, that existentialism, purpose and meaning. Um, that's something that, uh, in my experience, and I mentioned this on that episode with him, is um, 
in the veterans that I work with, that's a majority of, and, and I would say almost completely, um, an issue that many veterans are wanting to talk about, uh, where not all of them want to deal with PTSD or TBI, uh, but many veterans, if not all veterans that I talk to, um, really have questions around what is my life like after the military, um, how do I find purpose and meaning, and, and that's something that mental health professionals, especially with a background in existential psychology, um, you know, Irvin Yalom, Rollo May, uh, Victor Frankel, of course, um, has, uh, has a lot to be able to contribute to veterans in that space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, a lot of the work that uh, you do and the reason that I reached out to you, uh, even before this podcast was your work on, uh, on moral injury and, mm -hmm. uh, and moral injury, um, is similar to, which is one of the reasons why I, um, made sure that these episodes were closely together. It's tied to uh, existentialism, I think, in, in many ways, um, but it is a separate construct. And so um, I guess I'd like to start out my sort of description of moral injury, how I describe it to my veterans or how I've talked about it on the show and my blogs before, uh, but then go into what you understand. So sure, absolutely. I, I explain when I when I talk about this, I say that PTSD is an injury of the behavior. It's much that's a very simplistic thing, of course. Um, but the automatic fear response, the loud noise, and I have this neurological, physiological, behavioral response. Um, traumatic brain injury is an injury of the brain, a physical injury. But moral injury is an injury of the soul. Uh, it's an injury of what we believe to be right and wrong with the world. Um, and, and I explain it to veterans that it's when our, our compass that points to, to right, to correct, to, to good thinking, uh, maybe, um, it either goes off by a few degrees or many, many degrees. And, and we start to, uh, think about things in a way, um, that, uh, that may not be entirely acceptable and, and the experiences that we, um, that we have changes us. Would that be an accurate sort of um, non-clinical description to veterans of moral injury? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. I, I really like the metaphor of the broken compass, the broken moral compass, you know, as a way of capturing um, the experience of what it's like to be morally injured, you know, to feel like, you know, uh, a person no longer has the capacity for moral decision-making where they're going to be able to engage in intimate relationships, um, participate in socially sanctioned sources of meaning. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's a profound sense that their basic sense of humanity has been somehow stripped away from them. Um, you know, if we're going to use metaphorical terms, you know, I, I often, um, you know, will use the metaphor of the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, you know, that each of those characters is on a journey of sorts. And, you know, the Tin Man's journey is to um, recover his heart. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that many uh, morally injured veterans, you know, have that experience that somehow, you know, their sacred beliefs and values, the things that really made life worth living, um, that there, there's just an empty place where those things used to be. You know, I really like that. And that's, that's very interesting. But one of the things with the Tin Man is he noticed the loss and he longed for um, that, that hole to be filled. Um, yep. In my experience, veterans aren't really aware that that's even a thing, that that's, that's really that they're, they're almost not certain or, or they're not aware of the fact that they've lost that or that that hole exists. They know something's wrong, but they don't know that the heart is missing and they don't go on that journey to retrieve that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's why conversations like this one are so important. You know, just educating, you know, veterans about the potential manifold consequences of serving in war, um, even if they don't necessarily meet criteria for a psychiatric disorder like post-traumatic stress disorder or a, a medical disorder, which would be um, TBI in mild or moderate forms, um, educating folks on, you know, just 
the full continuum of um, challenges that can occur after war zone or military service. And, and moral injury is one of those things that have emerged, I think, really, and probably now over the last 25 years, and, and obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I believe with Jonathan Shea, of course, with Achilles in Vietnam, first developing that um, in the mid-80s, and what he saw with, uh, with veterans, Vietnam veterans coming back, mm-hmm. um, and then with uh, Dr. Litz and Shira Magwin and, and his work in, in sort of framing that, and then really what you're doing now, can you, can you talk a little bit about the emergence of the construct of uh, moral yeah, injury? Absolutely. I, you know, I, you know, so I think you're absolutely correct that the construct of moral injury has really um, only recently gained the attention of behavioral scientists and mental health professionals. Um, you know, but, you know, this is really an ancient idea that, you know, has a long history in philosophy, in literature. You know, so if you look at Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam, I mean, he was drawing his insights from, um, you know, the writings of of, of Greek um, tragedies, uh, you know, to form his concept. Um, But no, Jonathan Shea was the first one who really um, put the concept of moral injury on the map. You know, Shea's, you know, definition of moral injury really you know, tends to focus on the role of leadership malpractice, you know, where there is a a betrayal of what's right by someone who holds legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. So the focus is really on, you know, the experience of um, either witnessing or being the victim of, um, you know, kind of leaderships, you know, potentially, uh, moral acts of acts of moral wrongdoing, you know, and then lit then the, you know, couple decades passed. And I think that the real impetus uh, for the, the, the revival of the concept of moral injury, you know, I mean, it came in Litz and colleagues seminal paper in 2009. But I think um, the real impetus for that was, you know, the prior six to eight years, um, psychologists, mental health professionals, you know, like yourself, working with returning veterans and really feeling like they were coming up short, really feeling like they weren't doing enough. Um, and, you know, Litz's definition, you know, uh, it, it complements Shea's definition, but Litz's definition is more focused on what I might consider self-directed moral injury, you know, trying to capture the unique emotional, social, spiritual consequences that can emerge when you yourself was the agent of potential moral wrongdoing or you witnessed others commit these acts and you somehow hold yourself accountable for not limiting them in some way. Um, You know, there have been um, some recent definitions of moral injury that have come out, um, you know, really over the last year. Um, so there was a, a wonderful paper that was written by uh, a couple friends of mine, uh, Jake Farnsworth, uh, Kent Drescher, Wyatt Evans, uh, Robin Walzer. And, you know, they would define kind of moral injury as sort of the state of uh, kind of engaging in unworkable or dysfunctional attempts to resolve moral pain. Um, so what I like about this, this, this newer definition of moral injury is, you know, it highlights the fact that, um, you know, for, for, for folks who are experiencing a moral injury, you know, they may need to seek help. Um, their ways of coping are, are not helpful. They're not going to help them find their feet again, um, recover their heart, you know, to use the metaphor of the tin man. But there's also a recognition as well that, um, you know, the experience of painful moral emotions like guilt and shame, um, having thoughts of personal responsibility that, you know, considering, um, you know, just the hellish nature of war, um, that, you know, it makes sense that many of our veterans coming back, particularly those, you know, who were in um, really heavy combat situations, it makes sense that coming back, many of them are going to be experiencing a sense of moral pain. 
similar to grief after the loss of a significant loved one, and and that we don't want to pathologize those moral responses. Yeah, so that's a that's it's really great, and I hear three uh, very specific ways, and, and I get the sense that all of them uh, are true, and these are different aspects to the same overall construct. Is the uh, first the external betrayal of leadership or, or anything like that with uh, with Jonathan Shea? Um, when I was in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, and uh, and we call them black routes, right? With when routes were black, when um, the uh, uh, the IED teams have not gone and cleared it, and, and it's there's a potential for danger, mm-hmm. and yet yeah. we were still sent out on those routes. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, that many of my uh, my soldiers or, or us or you know we're just like well why are we here you know are, are the people back in the rear just trying to get us killed that kind of thing we knew that wasn't true but the sense was that there was this you know it we had to almost in some sense blame someone so that's very accurate from an experiential standpoint in in my really in Iraq as much and, and a little less in Afghanistan but definitely in Iraq when I was there in 06 07 uh, and so that's when I talked to veterans about this um, my buddy died and they're at fault. Somebody must be blamed and they're at fault because mm-hmm. they sent us out on this route to a perfect example is as we're recording, this is, um, is the national geographic, um, uh, episodes, yep. um, of the long road home where, uh, they were escorting, um, you know, uh, sewage trucks, you know, they mm-hmm. sent me out here, escort sewage trucks. And now my buddy died and they're to blame or they're the, you know, and so there's this external thing. Um, that that totally makes sense. Uh, but then there's the other piece of, of uh, Brett Litz and his colleagues of the internal, I'm to blame. And so it's an internal blame thing. Um, this is the one I hear often. My buddy, he and I swapped turrets, um, you know, swapped vehicles, and he died. You know, my vehicle went first, or we draw straws, and he went on the mission, and I didn't, um, and that should have been me. And I see that very often. Uh, and then finally, this this third one of, you know, I have, okay, so maybe I've recognized those two, but nothing I can do can overcome those feelings of guilt mm-hmm. and shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, think, no, go ahead. I, I was just, so I, I think, you know, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right that, you know, sort of use kind of the metaphor of the blind man and the elephant, I, I think, you know, Jonathan Shea um, and Brett Litz and his colleagues, you know, I think that they're they're highlighting, you know, different dimensions that need to be, you know, kind of acknowledged. So we need to be accounting for um, both these other directed and self-directed aspects of moral injury. Now, and, and we're not, and, and I guess maybe we can get into... Um, examples of events that would cause moral injury. Um, mm-hmm. I, I sure. see things on, um, on, on big scale. Of course, you know, we, we talk about Abu Ghraib or we talk about, you know, back in Vietnam, the My Lai scandal. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Or uh, in, in more recent times, I think it was 2011 or 2012 with the videos of the Marines, um, you know, urinating on the, the remains of the enemy and things like that. You know, I've had veterans as we talk about this, uh, and I use that that last one uh, specifically, uh, where I have veterans that say, I don't condone what they did, but I've gotten to the place where I understand where they thought that that was right. Mm-hmm. That's moral yeah. injury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what other kind of things uh, perhaps would be morally injurious in your experience to veterans? Yeah, so, uh, you know, so in terms of, um, self-directed events, or I think what what many folks are calling kind of transgressive acts. Um, you know, in my experience, uh, you know, maybe many of these um, um, kind of lesser severe events. You know, so obviously there's like the grand, you know, kind of scale events like you're talking about. Um, you know, but even like kind of lesser lesser severe events. You know. Um, uh, mistreating civilians, you know, being, you know, too harsh with civilians, you know, potentially um, damaging civilians' property unnecessarily, um, you know, killing in combat, even, you know, if it was done, um, 
you know, for right reasons and within, you know, clear rules of engagement, you know, I think as time passes and, and veterans, you know, reintegrate into civilian life and, you know, they're, they're once again, um, you know, kind of functioning within, uh, kind of cultural norms and, and mores in civilian culture that they may then look back on, you know, these very right actions in combat and, you know, an experience and, 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 you know, moral pain may emerge for them gradually over time. Um, I had a case, uh, you know, recently of a, uh, 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 ranger who, um, was, you know, doing a raid and they were, you know, going through a house and he was, uh, I think he was coming in second um, so he had, you know, a, a pretty, um, you know, pr so he kind of knew that he was going to potentially be the sitting duck, you know, in this group. And, you know, he heard a sound in the corner of the room and everything appeared to be, you know, quiet, but he heard a sound and it was a young child who was, you know, you know, about mm -hmm. eight, eight or 10 years old. And, you know, he had to make, I mean, a he had a fraction of a second to make a decision. And, you know, this was, you know, uh, a region where they, they knew that, that there were, you know, insurgents, that they knew that they, this was highly dangerous where children were being used, um, as weapons and they were, they were participating in, um, you know, violent acts. And in that split second, he exercised restraint and he did not pull the trigger on the kid. And, and, and it turns out the kid was not a threat. So he has incredible relief, right, mm -hmm. that he didn't take this kid's life. But then years later, he looks back on this event and he has guilt that he didn't pull the trigger. Right. Because he took the risk that maybe this kid would have had a weapon and then he would have been responsible for the deaths of his 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 close friends and comrades. You know, so. I mean, even that situation where the guy made, I mean, just a wonderful decision can still be grounds for, uh, can still serve as a transgressive act over time. Um, and that sounds a lot like um, meaning making, you know, the meaning that we place on our events, the, the reason why, you know, you know, uh, when and, and we talk about this often, when rabbits run away, when they're, you know, 500 yards away, that they're not worried about what happened. You know, the reason why they run away, they just don't they don't return that. Whereas we um, as the evolved creatures uh, ruminate and mm -hmm. and make meaning and put mm -hmm. reasons on. And and like you said, it, it's almost like we can morally injure ourselves just through the meaning that we place on these events. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think it's really important, you know, when we talk about moral injury, you know, to make uh, a, a distinction between uh, potentially morally injurious events, okay, and and the 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 expressions or the possible symptoms of a moral injury. You know, so in the same way, like when we talk about trauma, you know, we talk about exposure to certain events and then we talk about the development of post-traumatic stress disorder or other mental health conditions yeah, I think we need to have the same precision when we talk about moral injury because you know Dwayne you're exactly right you know that you know that that there that these these potentially morally injurious events occur all the time in the context of military service Right. It's just it's just the nature of the the work that we ask, you know, our service members to do. Um, but, you know, there are a series of intervening steps from exposure to a potentially morally injurious event and the state of becoming morally injured. And I think meaning making uh, appraisal is one of the huge connecting pieces uh, in this process. And that's where mental health professionals can actually play a key role in helping people to to come to terms with these events in in courageous but healthy ways that may not lead to the crystallization of moral injury over time. Yeah, no, I really like how how you said that is there's this continuum of 
um, even the event, but then later on how we tell ourselves about the event. Um, in, uh, in Afghanistan in October 2009, um, we, our patrol got attacked and we did lose one of our uh, service members, a Sergeant uh, Edaviguez Wolf, and she died. Um, but there were, um, and, and, and I say, you know, just the random number, but there's 25, 30 people, myself included, who feel a very real responsibility for yeah. her death on one way, shape, or form. I'm the one that, um, that, that approved her to go on the patrol. Um, my buddy who convinced me is the one who convinced me to allow her to go on the patrol. And so he and I, you know, we've had this really, and so, you know, everybody has, well, we're the reason, and we're holding a hundred percent of the responsibility on ourselves. We tell, that's the meaning we make to that event when the real responsibility is the insurgent who pulled the trigger. Um, you know, and, and, and so mental health professionals can, can help examine the validity of that belief of I'm responsible and assign and 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 I have come to the terms of the fact that yes I do bear a portion of the responsibility but it's nowhere the magnitude where I originally had thought um and so I really like that how 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 therapists mental health professionals understanding moral injury can help define that or discern that for the veteran yes and and it becomes more complex clinically um, the more responsibility that um, a veteran should take in terms of the um, you know potentially morally injurious event that happened. Um, you know, so I think um, a mistake that many clinicians make, um, you know, is that they you know attempt to you know alleviate or dismiss um, you know kind of guilt you know or shame you know over instances when, you know, maybe, maybe a veteran really was culpable. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and it's ironic, but you know, in my experience, you know, veterans, you know, who were potentially culpable or, you know, who served as agents of trauma or violence on others, um, you know, for reasons that maybe really were juxtaposed to the rules of engagement, um, that when they seek treatment, they don't want somebody who's going to explain away their actions. They want somebody who's going to help them to to take responsibility and to really come to terms. Um, you know, so in a way, it's akin to a process of confession. Um, you know, that they want somebody you know who's not going to, um, you know, for lack of a better word, absolve their sins too too quickly. They want to own them. They want to take responsibility for them. And I think that really speaks to, you know, we talk about the warrior ethos, but but we're used to taking responsibility. Veterans are used to accepting responsibility for their actions. It's a key aspect of their nature. Yeah, um, and, and so it would be disingenuous for them to even, you know, somebody say, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. Well, it doesn't change the fact that I do feel guilty and, and I actually do have a measure of guilt around it. Um, and so I really that that's a really important point. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think about the the action tendency that accompanies guilt, uh, you know, that we have the capacity to feel guilt for the purpose of making amends and making right that which has been damaged, whether it is a whether it's hurting someone that we care about, you know, that the capacity to feel guilt allows us to go and ask for forgiveness and to make amends. It gets complicated often you know, in cases of moral injury where there may not be a concrete way to make it right. Um, and this is another way where mental health professionals can help to, you know, to maybe make amends in different ways um, in the context of treatment. And, and uh, with, uh, with uh, Brett Litz in, in, in adaptive disclosure, yeah. um, this benevolent other, um, you know, that's the concept of, of that intervention is is uh, for for whatever these is having this it's almost like a gestalt like yeah, conversation dialogue. yeah right to with a benevolent other um and inside and, and i've had that i've 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 done worked with veterans to be able to say okay if if your buddy who you feel responsible for what would you say to them how would they respond to you you know them best and things like that and 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 i can definitely see how that can help um, kind of evolve that. And so those are for the very, very big sort of um, morally injurious events. But 
What about the the small clicks right on the compass? Um, the way I kind of explain it um, is there's sort of a cumulative effect of our belief in changing right and wrong. I describe it as um, there are no stop signs in Afghanistan. There's no speed limits. There's no one-way streets. The one-way street is whichever way I'm driving. Um, you know, there's, we would go, you know, for safety reasons, security reasons, for, for um, uh, expediency, um, wrong way around the traffic circle. Everybody stops and gets out of my way. Once, once you kind of, especially as an 18 or 19-year-old, um, realize that, hey, that's something that's possible. And if I, if I work in this very, you know, if it's not right to shove people out of the way, so to speak, or stop traffic and, and back it up, but now I have to come back to society where there are speed limits and rules and laws. And now I have to sit behind a little, little old lady at the checkout counter writing a check. Mm-hmm. Can that be morally injurious sort of in a cumulative way? I think so. Uh, I think often, you know, what happens for for some morally injured vets, you know, is that they come back and you know they're needing to function within this um, different cultural moral system of of right and wrong, um, and they look back and they can see this prior version of themselves acting very, 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 very differently. And for many, you know, morally injured vets, I think it challenges their self-concept. Um, it causes them to feel a sense of shame right. that, um, you know, that, um, like a year ago, um, you know, I was, you know, per- I, I was driving like, you know, uh, a madman or I was, um, you know, if that little old lady was in front of me in the checkout line, I would have, I would have pushed her out of the way, or or, 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 or cussed at her, or treated her very disrespectfully. Um, you know, so looking back, I think coming coming back, I think many many veterans they sort of feel like a monster um, because mm-hmm. you know they can look back on this prior version and realize that I have the capacity to um, to live outside of the social contracts of society, that I have that capacity, that is in me. Um, the reality is it's in all of us. Right. It's just not awakened. It's just not awakened, right? So, and veterans have experienced that. And, you know, I think for many of them, you know, it creates a sense of shame. It also creates a sense of fear of what they're capable of. So I think, what I think what drives avoidance in moral injury is often, um, you know, in a sense, it's almost out of love that they're withdrawing from social relationships or socially sanctioned sources of meaning because they're trying to protect the civilians right. because because they don't want to hurt anybody. They don't trust themselves. Um, you know, so I do think that, you know, that 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 it's, it can be the accumulation of these small I like the metaphor that you use, ticks of the moral compass um, that can really create problems over time. And, and that's something, and I, I really like how you brought that out, that feeling of, of being a monster. And that's how we describe things. And, and I often explain to veterans um, is uh, we, we take on the label of action. Um, we may have done monstrous things, but that doesn't mean we're a monster. We may have done bad things. It doesn't mean we're a bad person, but we put that on ourselves um, I had a veteran, uh, and, and, and as you and I um, originally um, came across, uh, and, and so many of the, the listeners know, I work with justice-involved veterans. Um, that's primarily the work that I do, yeah. uh, yep. been doing since 2014. Um, and, and this veteran was in the justice program, and he's, he's given me permission to freely share this. But he said that when he went in, this is his, his description, he said, when I went into, into that valley, I thought that I was Captain America. A year later, I came out finding that I was Dr. Doom. He mm. thought that he was this this hero that he was, I mean, he volunteered to go to Afghanistan. He was going to, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's some of it excitement, re- adventure, and really wild things, but also, you know, truth, justice, in the American way. Uh, and he went into um, the valley, you know, it's not, not to go too specifically into it, but and it could be any of them, Fallujah, Ramadi, um, you know, Korangal, the Argandab, any, you know, major Kunar province. Um, and so he went in there 
thinking he was one thing and then realized over that year um, that he was he had the capability of doing things um, that uh, that were monstrous and he saw himself as evil mm-hmm. and yet then went back on a second tour to the same location you know and and so compounded it so uh, I really right. like how you brought that out oh well good I'm glad so in and that's a lot of the the different things about moral injury, um, and and just maybe for a little bit, how is it separate from PTSD? Because many people think that well, well, isn't it all one and the same? But but it is a very clear difference. My description is um, PTSD doesn't explain survivor's guilt, um, at least in my my experience. Um, the the negative cognitions assigned to a traumatic event that. That doesn't explain survivor's guilt when they you weren't faced with that. So, could you talk a little bit about the difference between the two? Yeah, uh, you know, so it's really important to highlight the fact that the diagnostic criteria, you know, for PTSD has, you know, again been expanded uh, over recent years. You know, where now PTSD is no longer conceptualized as an anxiety disorder that. PTSD, you know, now finds itself in a new category of disorders called the trauma-related disorders. Um, you know, historically, you know, the diagnosis of you know PTSD, you know, emerged really for political reasons, not necessarily for um, out of really rigorous um, scientific research. Although I think we have learned through you know scientific research over the last thirty or forty years that um, you know. PTSD can be quite powerful, um, you know, and it tends to be um, particularly debilitating. Um, but we find ourselves at this point in time where uh, PTSD has become something like a kitchen sink right. diagnosis, where you know it really seems to, um, you know, to go too far afield, and it seems to almost apply to everything, you know, to the point where you know we can lose perspective that that PTSD is really intended to be a, a mental illness, you know, or a, a behavioral disorder of some sort. You know, so, you know, so when we talk about moral injury, uh, I think it's really important to highlight that, uh, that yes, um, kind of expressions of moral injury, the warning signs of a moral injury, um, that they do transcend the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, but they also overlap quite a bit. Um, you know, so for example, um, there's a lot of similarities in content with PTSD symptomatology. You know, so for example, both moral injury and PTSD, uh, they both are characterized by avoidance of memories or relationships, activities that are somehow reminiscent of the trauma. Um, they both entail kind of maladaptive beliefs about the trauma. Um, they both in, can entail strong, painful moral emotions. So one of the changes in the newest version of the um, criteria for PTSD is that you know the presence of persistent, persistent dysphoric emotion is now one of the symptoms. So guilt and shame can now be a symptom of PTSD in the same way that guilt and shame can be a warning sign of a moral injury. Um, Self-blame, social disconnection, uh, emotional detachment, psychic numbing, these things cut across both. Um, I think for me, um, as, as we think about like, like how to differentiate between PTSD and moral injury, for me as a clinician, um, it's, it's more helpful focus on the function of the the symptoms rather than the the content of the symptoms. So for example, um, behavioral avoidance be a key feature of either uh, PTSD or moral injury. Why do um, folks engage in um, you know behavioral avoidance in the context of PTSD? Well, it's typically you know to avoid um, feeling anxious, you know to avoid having, um, kind of that, that, that fight or flight mechanism triggered again, right? For folks that are engaging in avoidance in the context of moral injury, for them, it's going to be more about 
protecting others from being morally contaminated, trying to, you know, somehow protect others from, from knowing about all the things that they've been through, you know, that they, they don't want to taint others. They don't want to hurt others. Um, you know, so they may, you know, show the very same symptom, but they may do it for different reasons. No, I, um, I really like that. And I, and, and not to, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but that's, yeah. I could, I have this vision of two veterans, um, you know, sitting on opposite ends of, of the, the diner, for example, you know, have this, you know, everybody stay away from me. One of them, because, um, they're afraid of interactions with others. Um, the yep. environment, um, uh, makes them anxious or, or things like that. And so it's, it's a, I'm protecting myself from the environment where the other veteran that is dealing more, th- more morally injurious, as you said, I'm protecting the environment from me. And, yep. and that's a fine distinction that to be honest, can't be done in a 20 minute, 30 minute evaluation that takes time to really understand where that veteran's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, so you have these similarities, you know, but there are there are some really important distinctions, ways that maybe um, you know we can't really fully contextualize moral injury within the context of PTSD. You know, so you know at the level of events, um, yeah, potentially morally injurious events can occur in contiguous time and space with criterion A events for PTSD, but. It's possible that other types of events might be appraised as moral in, morally injurious than the events that that um, would be required to qualify as a criterion A stressor for PTSD. But as of right now, you know, criterion A stressors for PTSD they do not clearly account for acts of perpetration right. or, or or transgression. So this is this is one way that PTSD kind of falls short. Um, and the research would suggest that you know, that these acts of perpetration, that these transgressive acts, that they seem to have a particularly debilitating mental health impact um, compared to acts when one was potentially the victim or the witness. Um, yeah, I think even if you look at, you know, criterion D criteria for PTSD, this would be kind of the new symptoms that have emerged, you know, so negative trauma-related beliefs, expectation, cognitions. Um, you know, the, um, the the, the criteria for PTSD, you know, states that these need to be exaggerated or distorted attempts to make sense of the trauma. But, you know, I think beliefs related to moral injury, um, you know, that they tend to involve right and wrong, and they they may not be distorted at all. <laughs> yeah, they may be accurate. They may be accurate. So I think that's really key. Um, and then also, you know, the strong negative beliefs in the context of PTSD, you know, they that that we've we, we've we've set up the the diagnostic criteria in a way where they can be evaluated, you know, so you can empirically address the belief that the world is not a safe place. Like you can use cognitive restructuring, you can put that under a microscope, you can generate evidence for against that belief, but. For, for folks, you know, who are struggling with moral injury, they may be struggling with that belief, but they might be struggling with the belief the world should be a safe place. That and I, I know. know the world is safe, but you know what? There's something inside of me that says this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. So there's a, there's a distinction, um, you know, between descriptive and prescriptive cognitions and, you know, I think that PTSD is really effective at capturing the descriptive cognitions, whereas I think people who are struggling with moral injury tend to be struggling more with the prescriptive cognitions, more like the thoughts about like what the world should be like. Um, you know, so thinking thinking about a veteran who might be experiencing both PTSD and moral injury after they put their life on the line for potentially you know, three, four, five, six deployments, and now they're really struggling from a mental health standpoint, and they look back on this younger version of themselves, and they just have this sense that, you know, I shouldn't be struggling this way. This was not what I signed up for, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that can bring about, you know, a sense of moral injury, too. And and so in dealing with or or addressing 
um, post-traumatic stress disorder differently than moral injury or some of these other uh, concepts I've been talking about on other episodes. There's different interventions um, mm-hmm. that that uh, mental health providers would use. Um, EMDR works excellent with very clear post-traumatic stress disorder, the traumatic stress reaction of a criterion A event. Um, you know, prolonged exposure, if it's only just PTSD, that works very well. Um, and, and that's what I'm trying to get across to mental health professionals who may be listening is, you know, you need to use the right tool for, you know, the, the task that's in front of you. And if you think it's PTSD and you're using prolonged exposure, but it really has more of the prescriptive uh, description of morally injurious event, that's that's totally different kind of inter- intervention that's used. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so obviously this is... Uh the million dollar, maybe billion dollar question. Um, what treatment approaches are going to be most effective for addressing moral injury? How do we need to adapt existing evidence-based interventions for PTSD to address moral injury? Um, so there are a number of groups across the country that are really leading the way in this work. And you know, it's, you know these groups you know, seem to be taking kind of two basic approaches, you know, so there, there are some groups, you know, who are attempting to take, you know, evidence-based interventions. I mean, it could be EMDR, it could be prolonged exposure, it could be cognitive processing therapy. So they're taking kind of the bones of that intervention and then they're attempting to adapt it to also address issues of moral injury. And then you have some groups um, like, like Brett Litz's group, you know, who are developing novel interventions. Um, you know, so, I mean, the, the components of their intervention are not novel, but the packaging and the ordering of their interventions um, are novel. Um, it seems like the folks that are taking the novel approaches um, are really, um, in my view, doing a superior job incorporating interventions that are going to promote in-the-moment processing of painful moral emotion. So, uh, you know, I think, I think you can get at, you know, the resolution of guilt or shame in the context of imaginal exposure. Okay. But I think that you're only going to be able to get your, your veteran patient to a certain point in time. I think you need to be able to incorporate additional interventions, you know, that are going to move them toward forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others. And, so what's happening is you see um, Litz's crew, you see um, you know, Shira McGean, you know, she's developed a, uh, an intervention you know, to help um, um, veterans heal from kind of persisting trauma-related symptoms related to uh, acts of killing in war. Um, you know, so what you see them doing is they're incorporating events that really you know, had their early roots in the gestalt, in the humanistic therapy tradition. Right. You know, they're using these imaginal dialogues, whether in the form of a chair intervention in session or they're using, you know, a, a, a varied version of them, you know, where the focus is on um, writing or journaling. But essentially what's happening here is you're helping the person to, you know, promote dialogue within themselves to resolve this inner conflict. Um, and... In my experience, clinically, these kind of in-the-moment processing of emotion interventions that, um, you know, really this is these are the interventions that form the basis for emotion-focused therapy, Les Greenberg's work, um, they hold tremendous promise for addressing moral injury. Um, there are some folks that are really doing a good job um, uh, uh, modifying acceptance and commitment therapy um, to addressing moral injury. So... Acts, ACT has a focus on um, clarification of values, living in accordance with values, reclaiming values. You know, I think the values work in ACT um, lends itself really well to helping morally injured vets heal as well. So, and, and that's some, some really great uh, points, and I'll make sure to get uh, connections to, to all that um, in the show notes. Um, but also one of the important things is to determine 
um, whether there is moral injury in the first place. And that speaks to your work um, with the the assessments and how to develop. How do you assess moral injury separately from post-traumatic stress disorder? You want to talk about that for a few minutes? Absolutely. Um, You know, so um, I guess in terms of uh, the contribution of my work, um, I've been much more focused on assessment um, than intervention. Um, I'm kind of sitting back, allowing colleagues to do the heavy work in terms of intervention development and evaluation of interventions. Um, But we have, you know, made pretty good progress, you know, in the area of assessing, you know, moral injury. Um, so right now, um, you know, there would be two psychometrically available instruments um, to capture exposure to potentially morally injurious events. Um, so uh, Bill Nash, Brett Litz, they have a measure called the Moral Injury Event Scale. Um, it's a nine-item measure. It's, it, you know, it's pretty helpful for assessing kind of the presence of events that you know, where the, the, the veteran may believe that they transgressed, um, where they were the potential victim of um, betrayal. Um, and then we have the moral injury questionnaire, which is an event, which is a, ex- supposed to be an exposure-specific measure that myself and colleagues, uh, Kent Drescher and others, developed. And, and this measure assesses the exposure to a, to, to a fuller range of specific um, potentially morally injurious events. And we've talked about many of these. Um, more recently, over recent years, uh, my team has worked to uh, develop a tool for assessing the expressions of a moral injury. You know, so earlier we made a distinction between events and expressions. You know, so to continue to make that distinction, we have a couple good tools for assessing events. Now, um, you know, we have a, a tool. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to say that our article was accepted for publication last week. So I can now speak freely about our scale that we've passed peer review. Um, but we've developed, um, it's a 17-item version that captures both self-directed expressions of moral injury and other directed expressions of moral injury. Um, if, if I, um, you know, were to incorporate these measures in, in my own clinical practice, you know, which I do, I would tend to use them alongside conventional exposure measures. Um, so I would want to get a full picture of, you know, all of the different potential traumas that my patient had um, experienced. And then I would also use the um, – Uh, We call it the expressions of moral injury scale. I would use that alongside other conventional mental health symptom measures. So um, I tend to like the measures the VA endorses, the the PCL5 and the PHQ8. These would be measures of PTSD symptoms and depressive symptoms. What we have found in our research is that um, our uh, uh, measure of uh, moral injury expressions tends to overlap quite a bit with symptomatology of PTSD and depression, but it does tend to add something unique to the clinical picture that isn't being captured in the um, diagnostic criteria for PTSD and major depression. And that Um, sounds like it's really, um, you know, tuning the focus of the lens. Essentially what we were talking about earlier is is helping clinicians uh, discern a little bit more about what actually um, we're, we're addressing right here. Um, and, and so I, I, I find that very beneficial. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the first reasons or the first reason I reached out to you um, was, was my questions about the military uh, injury, uh, moral injury questionnaire military version, the MIQM. Um, I, in, in my clinical work, maybe this might be beneficial for you, is um, I find uh, the, the moral injury event scale good for more of a broad range if it's not combat focused so Mm -hmm. i have veterans maybe cold war era veterans who may not have engaged in combat um they respond much more to the moral injury event scale um versus combat veterans um that uh, that really that it it fine-tunes for your um uh, your assessment so i I use them both interchangeably um in the different context 
I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, so if, if, if there was a clinician out there that really wanted to get at a measure that's going to capture, you know, exposure to potentially morally injurious events that happened outside of the context of combat, um, in some ways, maybe our moral injury questionnaire might be a little limited um, because we we did craft those items with an eye toward uh, what might be considered war zone traumas. Yeah, and I and I found that in 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 actual practice, and so you know it's out in the field um, that that very much, and, and they both work, and, and it's just more tools in the toolbox for the clinician to be able to say that. I I remember very clearly I was conducting an assessment for the courts where I had had both, um, and I, I showed it to the veteran, uh, the MIQM to the veteran. He was like, yeah, this doesn't, this wasn't really a thing for me. But when I showed it in the MIES, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, and then he started going on. And yep. his was had much more to do with what you talked about or what we talked about at the very beginning, toxic leadership, leadership betrayal, um, you know, a, a lot more of that very early, you know, Jonathan Shea looking at that, that was much more of his concern and not mm-hmm. so much more the transgressive acts. And so, yep. yeah. Yep. Um, I think a really good question, you know, for clinicians to make sure that they ask veterans, um, you know, I think, I think it's helpful to, you know, to give these assessment instruments to, you know, to just get a, a comprehensive objective picture of all of the significant events that the the veteran has experienced, and I think by adding the the moral injury event scales, essentially what you're doing is you're sending the message very early on that you want to expand the conversation, that you're comfortable talking about these things, that you want to understand these events, and then once you have that information, I think a really helpful question is just to ask the veteran, which of these causes the most pain for you today or which of these events haunts you the most today and then to give the veteran the freedom to identify you know the the event or the events that are at the center of their pain Um, and like to not assume that every single veteran is going to identify a potentially morally injurious event there might be many that do but there might be others who have other types of potential military traumas that they're going to address. Right. And that's where I've, um, I, I've taken to using this conceptualization as we're going through this series uh, to walk through a veteran um, in, in each of these. And it, it addresses substance abuse, emotional dysregulation, separate from PTSD. And, and it kind of goes through all these. And it's been able to help. You know, I have a veteran, you know, who says, yeah, I've, I've gone to the PTSD program. I've got that piece, but things are still out of whack for me. And in the discussion, it was really much more of the, uh, you know, Victor Frankel. The the purpose yeah. and meaning was was his concern. Is 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 that aspect of of his post military life hadn't been addressed. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I, I I like this to be able to just discern really what we're doing. Joe, I, I think we could talk about this stuff all day, uh, and, and I really appreciate your time. I think this is really going to help both the veterans who listen to this um, understand um, about moral injury, but also um, maybe their family members and, and definitely clinicians. So before we wrap up, how can um, how can listeners learn more about what you're doing? How can they reach out to you? Uh, email is the best way to reach me. Uh, my email address is jcurrier, C-U-R-R-I-E-R, at southalabama.edu. Um, you can also find me um, on my faculty page for the University of South Alabama uh, uh, website. Um, send me an email. Um, I'll be glad to share any of these resources with anybody that's trying to help veterans. Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, to to get all those in the show notes, and uh, and and we'll do a recap here in a bit, and and make sure that everybody has that information. Any last thing that you'd like to uh, talk about, real quick? No, I, I just really appreciated this conversation this morning, um, and I'm I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, Dwayne. No, I, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing because this is uh, this is a. A, a big aspect of something that's not really out there and uh, and and both on the um, the academic side and the clinical side um, really all of us sort of pulling levers where we're at 
um, is the way that we're going to get something done. And hopefully, like we said at the very beginning, you and I can go be fishing guides somewhere or something. <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, uh, and uh, and look forward to uh, hearing more from you in the future. All right, sounds good. So we just got done listening to a great episode with Dr. Joseph Courier talking about moral injury. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talked about at either changerpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com. Looking for episode HST033. This is the ninth episode of Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. If you're just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025 where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV podcast network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone. Ever. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.